All right, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them now with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Last week's sermon was entitled, Varieties of Gifts, but One God. Today's sermon is entitled, Varieties of Gifts, but One Body. And we're going to look at verses 12 to 31 together. Read along with me. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of gifts of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Daniel LaRusso, also known as Daniel Son, is the young man in the original 1984 movie, The Karate Kid. And if you don't know, The Karate Kid is the story of Daniel LaRusso and his mother who moved from Newark, New Jersey to Los Angeles. And Daniel meets the, the handyman of his apartment complex who uses, at one point, his karate skills to defend Daniel from Johnny Lawrence, a violent bully at school. After seeing Mr. Miyagi's skills, Daniel asks him to train him himself. Daniel's excited because he's finally going to be able to defend himself and perhaps even win the heart of Allie Mills, Johnny Lawrence's girlfriend. But when the training begins, it's not quite like what Daniel's son was expecting. 
He was expecting to do powerful things like punching and kicking. But, but instead, what happens? Mr. Miyagi takes him into his backyard where there are several old cars, and he has Daniel's, Daniel's son wash and wax them. But he can't just wash and wax them however he wants. He has to do it in a very particular way. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off, over and over and over again. And then he needs to paint an old fence, but he can't paint it however he wants to. Mr. Miyagi says it's all in the wrist. Wrist up, wrist down. Wrist up, wrist down. And Daniel has to do this for hours and hours and hours. Wax on, wax off. Wrist up, wrist down. And it all just seems pointless. He wants to learn something new and more exciting and more powerful. Church, I don't know about you, but as we are now in our 10th month of studying this letter together, I kind of want to move beyond the theme of unity. I kind of want to hear something new. I kind of want Paul to teach me how to punch and kick in the Christian life. I, as a pastor, am beginning to feel a little bit like Mr. Miyagi. Redeemer Fellowship, wax on, wax off, pursue unity, fight division, do it again. Do it again, wax on, wax off. Pursue unity, fight division. And it can feel so redundant, so repetitive. It can feel like we need to hear something more from Paul. Particularly as we come into the spiritual gifts, it's like, all right, finally, we're going to learn how to punch and kick. Teach us, Paul, how to prophesy and how to speak in tongues. But like Mr. Miyagi, Paul is being very intentional with the Corinthians and with us. If you've seen the movie, you know that every movement that Daniel learned was intentional. Mr. Miyagi was instructing him in a way that would make these foundational movements instinctual for Daniel. They they needed to become like second nature so that he would never forget them when he fought. Church, the same is true with Paul. Because our need to hear about gospel-empowered unity, listen, it's no less today than in January when we first looked at it in chapter 1. The need for unity remains the same. The need is the same in our own hearts. The need is the same in our church family. The need is certainly the same in our culture. Everything is always pushing us towards disunity and division. And so it's kind of God, it's very kind of God to train us in this over and over and over and over again. My prayer this week, even as I open up the text, I'm like, man, it's about unity again. They're going to get tired of this. But my prayer has been that as we're nearing the end of this New Testament letter, that a burden for a healthy practice of unity would become like second nature to us. That it would become second nature to confess sin to God and to each other, and to confess pride and to ask for forgiveness, to honor others more than ourselves, and to just pursue unity together at all costs. And our text today is only going to further train us in this, particularly in regards to the spiritual gifts. The main idea for our sermon this morning is this. We were baptized into one body and should honor every part. We were baptized into one body and should honor every part. And we have three points. Number one, baptized into one body. And we're actually going to spend the bulk of our time in that first point because there's some things we need to discuss. Point number two, belonging to one body. That's in verses 14 to 20. And then point number three, beautifying the one body. That's in verses 21 to 31. Okay, let's begin with the first point. Point number one, baptized into one body. Look, Look at verses 12 to 13 with me. 
Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Paul is saying that we can and should pursue unity because we have all been baptized into one spirit and into one body. But listen, what does it mean that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body? Or that we were all made to drink of one spirit? What does that mean? Is Paul talking about our physical baptisms here? Is he talking about our conversion? Or is he talking about a a secondary baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we should all look for and expect, and which some would say always is attended with speaking in tongues? Church, we need to talk about this idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit this morning. This is a huge part of the conversation about spiritual gifts today. There are very different theological perspectives about the baptism in or of the Holy Spirit. And Some of these perspectives can at times be unhelpful, and so we need to be careful about how we think about these things together. Let let me share three primary perspectives on what it is to be baptized in or of the Holy Spirit. The the first two perspectives would be perspectives that I I generally disagree with, and the third would be my my best attempt at what I understand the Bible to mean through this term. But, But let me say this, like, It's uncomfortable as a pastor sometimes to preach about things that you don't have perfect clarity about. I don't feel like I have perfect clarity about these things, but I believe that there's there's clarity enough to to see what Scripture is saying here. So I want to do my best to explain this from God's Word. The the first perspective would be the traditional Pentecostal or, or charismatic perspective. This This position would say that even though all Christians are are indwelt by the Holy Spirit upon conversion, there is an official secondary experience of the Holy Spirit which should happen to all believers. This is often called baptism of the Holy Spirit rather than just baptism in the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is the agent doing the baptism. Those in this camp would see a, a regular pattern in Scripture where Christians are given the Spirit for regeneration and conversion, but there is a subsequent, a secondary experience where the Holy Spirit empowers the new Christians for ministry and for gospel witness. And so our friends who are in this camp would look at different places in the Bible and in the book of Acts in particular, and they would see subsequent experiences of the Holy Spirit after conversion in the Christian's lives. And so, for example, Acts chapter 19, verse 7, it says that Paul finds some disciples in Ephesus, and he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. And so Paul has them baptized in the name of Jesus and it says that the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So the traditional Pentecostal view would say that that, among other examples, is a clear picture of Christians experiencing a a secondary baptism of the Holy Spirit which was always attended by tongues and by prophecy. Now personally, I... I do not think that that text furthers the Pentecostal perspective. First, because I do not necessarily even think that those disciples in Ephesus were yet Christians. 
It says that they had been baptized into John's gospel. So I think that Paul might have actually just been present for their initial conversion and initial experience of the Holy Spirit, which did, in this example, was attended by prophecy in tongues. Or they were already Christians, but this was just a secondary Pentecostal moment inaugurating the church age and the age of the Holy Spirit, not just for the Jews in Acts chapter 2, but also for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 19. And that experience included speaking in tongues just like it did in chapter 2. And speaking in tongues is, is fairly central to this Pentecostal perspective. The, the traditional Pentecostal perspective would say that, that praying in tongues is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so they would look for, they would expect every Christian to have this secondary experience. They would not say that it is for conversion, but it is for greater power in Christian life and ministry and to live a holy life for Jesus. Friends, I want to be honest. I, I do not hold to this position and I honestly have some concerns about this position, but I also really, really, really respect those who hold this position. I respect them because they are being faithful to explain clear examples in Scripture of the Holy Spirit moving in particularly powerful ways. As we read through the book of Acts, there are indeed many moments when the Holy Spirit moves powerfully among the Christians. And we see that a lot. And those examples need to be explained. And so I appreciate how they try to explain it in this way. But, but I don't hold to this position. One, 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 of, my, one of my main concerns is that the traditional Pentecostal view seems to require or expect a, a specific type of secondary experience. And I don't think we have biblical warrant to do that. We believe that every Christian, even as Paul says here, every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. Every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit in full measure. We are filled up with the Spirit's presence, with His person. You can't have more of His person with you. Truly, through your conversion, you have been baptized into one Spirit. We all share this glorious identity together. We are people of the Spirit. Yes, we long for more of His power, but His personal presence cannot become any fuller in us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. He has regenerated and indwelt our hearts. And those may be two distinct things, but they happen at conversion, and He is now eager to work powerfully in our lives. And so I think it is potentially dangerous that, there, that we say that there is a specific kind of secondary work of the Spirit that we need as if we don't have a full measure of him already. I believe that we have everything that we need in and through our conversion and that we shouldn't say that there's a, a needed or a required experience for all believers, particularly when that second experience is tied to a particular evidence like speaking in tongues. I think that seems to negate what Paul has been arguing for throughout this letter, unity and camaraderie despite the diversity among us. In fact, in fact if this perspective was right, there would be millions of Christians over the many years who never experienced the Holy Spirit as God fully intended. Millions of Christians who didn't experience the Spirit as God designed because they didn't have this secondary experience or ever speak in tongues for themselves. And so one of my, one of my concerns 
is that whether intentionally or unintentionally, I assume unintentionally, this perspective has often created a bit of a a two-tier Christianity. This at least is a danger in it. A Christianity in which there are the the average Christians, and then there are, in a sense, the, the super-Christians who have, who have been filled with the Spirit in a particular way and spoken in tongues. That seems to contradict the very idea of unity that Paul's speaking about here. And so even while I agree that what those who hold this perspective want and looking for is good, I don't agree in how they pursue it. I do think that we should look for secondary and even tertiary experience of the Holy Spirit. We should all long for greater empowerment and strength for life and ministry from on high. But I do not think that we should limit what that looks like to a particular type of baptism of the Holy Spirit or say that some Christians are still missing some of the Spirit if they do not have that experience. So the first way of understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this traditional Pentecostal perspective. The second way of understanding it is to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit as being only equivalent to conversion. Okay, so this this perspective basically says that, that every single Christian has the full measure of the Holy Spirit upon conversion, which is true. His person is equally present within all of us. But this perspective falls short in that they don't look for secondary or any subsequent outpourings of the Spirit. They basically say what's already full can't be made more full. And friends, what I like about this perspective is that it centers our primary experience of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. Jesus said that he would send a better helper, and we know that those who are disciples of Jesus have this better helper living within them. The Holy Spirit is with us. Upon conversion, we are regenerated and we are indwelt and empowered for life and ministry. Paul has said in this very letter, Church, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? We are full of the Spirit. What a a joyful reality that is. He is our seal. He is our guarantee. He is our assurance. We are indeed better today with the Holy Spirit within us than the disciples were with Jesus by their side. That's amazing. And what I like about this perspective is that it ties the filling and the empowering work of the Spirit to the moment of conversion and not to a later experience. We don't need to be anxious as Christians that that we haven't had a full measure of the Spirit given to us, but for some reason have missed out on that. And I like that about this. But a concern that I have about this perspective is that it does not make us hungry enough for the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives. It does not do justice to the examples in Scripture of the Holy Spirit being poured out on His people in new and fresh ways. While while every Christian is certainly full of the Spirit, it seems very clear that God wants the Spirit's power and activity to overflow in our lives. And you and I should want and desire that as well. Many who land in this position will, will say things like, We don't even need to pray for more of the Spirit because we already have the Spirit in full measure. Church, I don't think that's biblical Christianity. We already have the fullness of the Spirit's person living within us, but we should long for and pray for God to send more of His activity and power into our lives. And so that brings us to the third category of being baptized in the Spirit, still under our first point of being baptized into one body. The third option here is that baptism in or baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply an expression 
of being powerfully affected by the Holy Spirit. And that Scripture uses this term in different ways. To be baptized into the Holy Spirit is to be powerfully affected. It is to be immersed in the power and the goodness of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the Spirit is to be filled. It is to be empowered. It is to be given new gifts. It is to be enlivened and quickened and equipped for life and ministry. And this term can capture all of these things at different times. And that certainly includes conversion. We were baptized into one body. Even that word baptism here in verses 12 to 13, in the context of what Paul is saying, that that. That term is speaking of an initiatory rite, even our physical baptism. Paul seems to be connecting the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and our public baptism and the empowering of the Spirit for ministry within us, which all happen at a very close time to each other in the New Testament. Paul seems to be speaking of those things as almost synonymous to the same experience of conversion. It's almost like in in verse 13, Paul could say, rather than you were baptized, you were saved or converted into one body. Even as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. There in Ephesians 4, Paul's not speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit at all. He's speaking of all of God's activity in our lives which unite us together. So I truly believe that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is primarily talking about conversion. Paul's whole point is not about a secondary experience, but about how we have been brought together into one body together. And that happens through conversion and through immersion into the Holy Spirit at conversion. So there's nothing, nothing magical here. Paul's not trying to be hyper-spiritual. He's, he's making the incredibly practical point that all of the gifts of the Spirit are important and equally valuable because we were all baptized into one body. We weren't baptized into different bodies. Some of us were not converted through one spirit over here and some of us through another spirit over there. No, we were converted. We were saved by God's grace through the same spirit bringing us to Jesus and uniting us together in Jesus. Listen to these quotes from two faithful scholars, D.A. Carson and John Piper. D.A. Carson says, Charismatic, speaking of of the general historical Pentecostal perspective, charismatics tend to want to make all occurrences of the expression baptized in the Holy Spirit refer to a post-conversion effusion of spirit. Some anti-charismatics contemplate 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and conclude, listen, with equal fallacy that all New Testament references are to the effusion of spirit all Christians receive at their conversion. He says the problem is the assumption on both sides that we are dealing with a terminus technicus, a technical term that always has the same meaning. He says there's insufficient evidence to support that view. Interestingly, the Puritans, he says, adopted neither extreme, apparently detecting in the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit no consistent technical meaning. They took it to mean effusion in spirit or inundation in spirit. And they felt free to pray for revival in the terms, oh, baptize afresh in thy Holy Spirit. 
Carson says, we start the whole conversation about these things wrongly if we think that the term baptism in the Holy Spirit is a technical term with a very narrow definition. Rather, we need to approach the conversation by acknowledging the variety of uses and applications of this term throughout God's Word. Listen to John Piper. He says, Jesus says in Acts 1.5 and in verse 8 that baptism in the Spirit means you shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses. This is an experience of boldness and confidence and victory over sin. A Christian without power is a Christian who needs a baptism in the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm aware that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says that baptism in the Spirit is an act of God by which we become a part of the body of Christ at conversion. So that in his terminology, all genuine converts have been baptized into the Spirit. That's the point of this text he's saying. But listen, we have done wrong in limiting Paul's understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit to this initial subconscious divine act in conversion and then forcing all of Luke's theology and acts into that little mold. There's no reason to think that even for Paul, the baptism in the Holy Spirit was limited to the initial moment of conversion. And for sure, in the book of Acts, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is more than a subconscious divine act of regeneration. It is a conscious experience of power. Piper's saying, it's both. It's a flexible metaphor. It can be applied to our conversion and initial indwelling, and it can apply to many other conscious experiences of God's power as well. So I do not think that we need to find a definitive definition for this term. There's flexibility in how we want to apply it. The thing that I do not think we should do is encourage people to look for a specific type of experience with a specific type of evidence like speaking in tongues. I want us to pray in tongues. I love praying in tongues, but I don't think we should make that the evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. But that does not mean that I do not believe in the second, third, and fourth workings of the Spirit in our lives, or that we shouldn't desire these things very much. These things are clearly seen in Scripture as gifts that we should earnestly desire. In fact, before we move on to the next point, let me just pray. But if you bow your head, if you even open your hands, let me just pray and ask God to be working among us. God, we thank you for how generous you have been to us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to regenerate and empower us to live lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you that we do not live in this world alone, but your Spirit is with us at all times. Thank you that he is our seal and our assurance. But Lord, we look into your word and we see that he is able to move powerfully in our lives. God, we long for him. We long for him to move powerfully in our lives, not just for empty emotional experience, but for power from on high to live lives that are pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, make us more godly. Make us more like Jesus. God, we pray that your spirit would make us more courageous. We look into your word and we see boldness and courage to be witnesses of Jesus. God, please allow your spirit to strengthen us in new and fresh ways for this. God, we pray for more spiritual gifts among us. We're not satisfied. We pray for all of the spiritual gifts to be present among us because we believe that each one and the diversity of all is from you and for our good and for your glory, that they will help us to declare to get together that Jesus is Lord. God, please send more of your Spirit's activity among us. Fill us, empower us, refresh us. 
accomplish your will in our lives. For the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Point number two, belonging to one body. Baptized into one body. Point number two, belonging to one body. This is in verses 14 to 20. And these verses are thankfully not very hard to interpret. What Paul says here is very profound, but easy to understand. He says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He gives us a very helpful illustration here. He says that each of us have one physical body, but within our one physical body, there are many parts. Feet, hands, ears, eyes, toes, fingers, knees, elbows. You can see him list some of these things. Many parts, but unity in the one body. And his main point, his main point can be found down in verse 27 when he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's talking to a local church family and he's saying that though there are many members within the church, they all make up one body together even as our physical bodies are and every member is important. He's making it explicitly clear that every member of the local church, regardless of what gifts they do or do not have, belongs to the body. And church, that's great news, isn't it? Christian, you belong Hear that this morning. You belong to the body of Christ. No Christian is an unnecessary part of the body. I don't know about you, but Ashton and I love uh, a good murder mystery. Some of the classics uh, are our favorites. We love Sherlock. We love Monk. We love Poirot. We love Sean and Gus. We love The Mentalist. And there are lots of others we like as well. But what is a regular occurrence in murder mysteries? They often start by people finding a missing body part, don't they? Right? The cute couple is running on the beach together and they see something strange floating in the water and so they go over and explore only to their horror to find out that it's a, a severed foot in the, in the water. The old lady walks down into her, her son's basement and opens the freezer expecting to find food but finds frozen fingers, whatever it may be. The bad guy wants to send the message so he sends an eyeball in a package. All these, all these things, it's always horrible. Listen. Not once in these movies, when they open that package and see that finger, do they say, yes, we have a finger. Not once do they say, oh, at least we have Frank's finger. Oh, well, for Frank, we've got the finger. Let's put it on the mantle and remember him by that. No, separated body parts are always a bad thing. Christian, it's the same in the church. It should seem very unnatural to us, even strange and grotesque when we think about a member of Christ's body not belonging to the whole. That should never become a natural thing in our minds, which is why I'm so immensely grateful for those of you who participated in the Explore Retreat this week. Thank you for prioritizing the local church and the corporate body. Listen, some of you need to hear this morning, you belong you are not alone. You are not by yourself in this world. You belong. If you're here for the first time, God wants you to know that He has a place for you to belong among His people. You do not need to live this life by yourself. That's His ultimate design for you. Listen, if you're a member of Redeemer Fellowship, but you feel as if you are unseen and unknown by your pastors and by your church family, you need to hear that you belong to this body and we want to hear from you. 
We want to help you not just to belong in name only. We want you to truly belong to the body. Christian, you belong to the body of Christ. Paul doesn't leave any question here. He doesn't say you're members of the body if you have certain gifts. He doesn't say you're a member of the body if you have a certain personality or if you have certain types of spiritual experiences. He doesn't say you're a member of the body if you give a certain amount of money or think a certain way about theological issues. He doesn't say that you're a member of the body only if you are perfectly holy and never make a mistake throughout the week. You're not a member of the body if you are a leader only or if you read your Bible perfectly each day. No, every Christian who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins, no matter their gifting, no matter their strengths, no matter their weaknesses, every Christian belongs to the body of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for our souls, and it's a beautiful thing to look around and consider about those around us. And that brings us to our third and to our final point. Point number three, beautifying the body. Beautifying the body. Now as people, particularly in this culture, we care a lot about our physical beauty, don't we? We think about our our physical beauty so much, and there are things that we do not just for general health, but for specific parts of our body. So, So we diet and we exercise in general, but we also do specific things like skin care, and we color our hair. Sometimes we color just certain strands of hair, not other strands of hair, in order to highlight them. Sometimes we We think about gut health and we eat collagen for our joint pain. And listen, if you go to a health store, you're going to find a full shelf of items for every part of your body. We have manicures and pedicures. We paint our toes to look pretty. That's weird. We work out and we work out in very specific ways. We focus on specific muscles. We have chest day and back day and leg day. I hate leg day. It's the worst. Professional bodybuilders care a lot about the gastronemius muscle. Did you know what the gastronemius muscle is? It's the calf muscle, and it's a big deal. Bodybuilders work really hard to have that specific muscle look good because it's the hardest muscle to grow. We are insane about our physical bodies, trying to care for every single part. And listen, while I'm not sure that God wants us to care that much about our physical beauty, We as a church can actually learn that for our spiritual body. What Paul is saying in this text is that we should care about every single member of the church. He says that how strange would it be if the whole body were just a bunch of eyes or ears. That would be grotesque and that's not God's design. We should care about every single member. Look at verse 21. Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. He's saying that because we are all members of the same body together, we cannot view any part of the body as unimportant. Not only are we not unimportant, but each part, he says, is deserving of honor. We should seek to beautify and honor every part of the local church. Look at verse 22. He says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. He's saying that 
even the things that seem ordinary and unimpressive, they are absolutely essential. They're essential, they're indispensable, he says. Feet are ugly things. Feet are dirty. But Paul seems to be saying that we bestow greater honor on them simply by our need for them. Feet feet are ugly, but none of us want to go without feet, right? They deserve honor. The essential body functions properly when we have our feet working for us. There are things within the local church that seem more ordinary, but if we don't have those things, we fall on our face. Every petite has the gift of administration. We thank God for that. Does it seem maybe at times a little less impressive? I don't think so, but some of us might think so. If you cut out the feet of every petite, boom, I'm done. This whole church falls apart. When he talks about how the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, he's very likely talking about our sexual organs there, and they're, they're covered up for the sake of modesty, but none of us would say that they are unimportant or that we want to go without them. God has so designed our body with many parts and many different functions, but all of them are important. All of them belong. We cannot say that we have no need of any part of our body. Those parts of the body which may seem less visible or less public are no less a part of the body that we are a part of, and we should seek to honor them and make them beautiful. We should celebrate them, and we should feel what they feel. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then in verse 27 to 31, Paul lists many of the gifts. He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then he highlights the the diversity of gifts again. And he says, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets. Many people think that he, he uses first, second, and third to kind of play into the Corinthians thinking. They were, they were raising certain gifts above the others, so he starts listing them. One of the gifts they prioritized most was gifts of, of tongues, and so he strategically puts it at the very end. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. He lists the variety of spiritual gifts, things as broad as extra-local apostolic leadership to things as seemingly ordinary as the gift of helping and administration. But Paul says that, that all of them come from God, and all of them are deserving of honor. He's intentionally highlighting the diversity. Again, he's highlighting that not everyone is going to speak in tongues. Not everybody's going to be a prophet. Not everybody's going to have the gift of administration. Not everybody is going to be an apostle, and that's okay. When he says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, Paul is saying that it's good and it is right to desire all of the gifts. It's not bad to want to prophesy and to pray in tongues. We should desire those things. He's gonna say the same thing in chapter 14. It's good and it's right to desire those things. But in the context, he is emphasizing that we should not desire those things to the shame or to the minimizing of the other gifts. No, desire desire more of the Spirit, please, but don't minimize what the Spirit is already doing in the body. All gifts are essential. And as a local church family, a local church body, we should celebrate them all and honor them all. 
Earlier this week, I got an email from Dave Wickes in our church. He was a part of the Explore class just this past weekend, and he was affected by last week's sermon on many gifts but one God. And he, he, he wrote me uh, just a, a reflection that he had written down, and uh, it affected me and encouraged me, and I think that it will encourage you as well. It's so thoughtful how he says this. He says, I am proud to be a gallbladder. He said, today at my church, I helped with the function support ministry. We don't have a church building of our own, so we meet at a school and have to set up and tear down every Sunday. This was the first time I volunteered to help, so I basically asked what I should do, and I did it. My jobs included setting up and taking down chairs, moving carts, putting up signs, and various other easy manual tasks. As I worked along, I thought to myself, there are so many other people here doing exactly what I'm doing that I don't really feel too useful. I felt like a gallbladder. I had a job to do, but the body could operate just fine without me. But the truth is that even the gallbladder has a purpose. According to Elizabeth Brainerd, professor of biology and medical science at Brown University, the gallbladder acts as extra storage space for bile, and it contracts to, help, to add more bile when we eat a particularly fatty meal. He says, people without a gallbladder have to be careful not to eat too much fat at one time or they may experience abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Even this insignificant body part with a relatively insignificant function can make life more comfortable for the body. So even my rather small contribution to set up and tear down made life that much easier for the rest of the people serving and helped create a space where we could all worship God together. Isn't that good? He says, while I worked, I watched in amazement as everyone was busy about their particular job. The body was working together for a common good. It didn't even feel like work. We had most everything done within an hour after the worship service ended. As I thought about my role at church this Sunday, I did desire to do more. And the apostle does encourage us to desire greater gifts. But as our pastor pointed out today, we should be satisfied with whatever gift God gives us. If I am to remain a gallbladder, I will be happier with that. But if he wants me to be a liver, an eye, or even a brain or heart, I will be satisfied with that too and not think I'm more important because I have more responsibility. He says, what really amazed me, I love this, what really amazed me was that as insignificant as I felt my job was, several people thanked me for serving. It really shows me the love in our church, which is what the Apostle Paul will tell us next about spiritual gifts when we get into chapter 13. He says, this gallbladder is looking forward to serving again on the function support team. I love it. I love it. And I'm so thankful for David and his eagerness to serve and so many others and the love as, that we have as a church family for each person and the role that they fill, no matter how big or insignificant it may be. Redeemer Fellowship, may we beautify the body of Christ by celebrating how Jesus is at work in each and every one of us. May we not minimize or belittle certain roles, but each have ambition to serve humbly wherever we are and to be used by God in any way that he designs. And in, in it all, may it be used by God to declare that Jesus is Lord and that our lives are being lived for his glory. Let's pray.